millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, the greatest monuments, statues and other constructions, such as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Colossus of Rhodes, were celebrated as wonders of the world. And like days of the week, seas and deadly sins, there were always seven of them. Lists of more modern marvels have included the Great Wall of China, the Taj Mahal, even the London sewage system. Other Magnificent Sevens recognise natural wonders such as the Grand Canyon in America or the Great Barrier Reef off the coast of Australia. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the guest I'm asking today is Stephen K. Amos, whose career as a stand-up comedian has taken him to theatres and other venues on tours up and down the country and around the world for something like 20 years. In that time, a regular performer on the Edinburgh Fringe and at comedy festivals in Australia and beyond. Stephen has also appeared on a wide range of TV programmes, comedy, panel shows, drama, documentaries. And he's even appeared at the Royal Variety Show. Now, Stephen, Wikipedia lists the topics you cover in your comedy as being Australian culture, British culture, Nigerian culture, current events, human interaction, racism and sex. Have they left anything out? Me, I talk about me. <laughs> all stand-up comedians talk about themselves. It's uh, all about me, Clive. Yeah, yeah. But I do notice Australia cropping up a lot. If I feel as I'm understanding you've spent quite a lot of time in Australia. Is that right? That is true, Clive. What happened is about uh, 12, 20, 30, 25 years ago, I went to Australia for the first time. And who knew that I was one of the few black British comics to ever grace the shores of Australia? And thankfully, they took me under their wing. And thereby, the uh, the adage goes, I was very big down under, to coin a phrase. Yes, I've, I've heard that. Well, I, I, I kind of have to ask this question of everyone at the moment. Uh, but somebody, especially in comedy and travelling around a lot, must have been a difficult couple of years uh, with the pandemic and the different rules and regulations uh, affecting uh, where, where you can go and what you can do. That is true. It was horrendous. For the first, uh, I, I mean, I was actually in Melbourne, Australia during the first uh, wave of this dreaded lockdown business and this thing that was going around the world. And I was there, meant to be there for three months, and I was there for a week. And their stories broke. This thing was traveling airborne. So I used to go on stage with a mask on my face. That alone would have brought the house down. And then I took the mask off and I said, I've just flown in from Wuhan. Even bigger laugh. Little did we know that a few weeks later, I'll be back in London because the whole world had shut down. And then we began, thankfully, finding new ways to work. And it was over something called Zoom. Zoom I never heard of Zoom, Clive. And uh, there's nothing more satisfying to a comedian than sitting in my house, in my kitchen, in my boxer shorts, looking at my computer, people in houses better than mine. It was horrendous. It was not. And sometimes the, they didn't even unmute the people on the Zoom. So I didn't know if they were laughing or not. So there's a balance in these things. It's a worldwide pandemic, but you got two big laughs uh, for a couple of weeks in Australia. <laughs> that was all. That was all I had. And I go back to London, nothing, nothing. And then they tried, uh, I don't know if you heard about this, Clive, they tried um, these sort of uh, cin uh, open air sort of cinema gigs like they used to do in the 50s. We're regressing. So people would turn up in their cars uh, with the audio coming through their cars and you're on stage and there's 600 cars and you can't hear a single one of them. Um, unless, of course, you're doing badly and you hear them reversing. Uh, some of them had <laughs> those bleeping sounds on them. That was great. Did they did they hoot, you know, to indicate laughter? Did they do that sort of thing? Some of them hooted. Some of them put their windscreen wipers on. Some of them flashed their lights. These are things that are not. I'm not used to. I can't work my timing around flashing lights. I thought I was being blinded. Yes, oh, it's. I mean, this is not. A, this is nothing about you, but this is about comedy and comedians generally. It just is a very needy sort of job, isn't it? You want immediate approval from the audience. You can't. Just I mean, that is. 
yes, absolutely. That's my guaranteed response. If I say something that I'm in my head, I'm designed it. I've designed it to get some sort of response. I'm waiting for said response. I'm not waiting for a visual clue and a cue. It's just let me know because that's why I'm there. I want to be massaged. That ego needs to be massaged. Yeah, well, we'll perhaps come on to that in the course of your various wonders, but let's let's start with your first wonder, um, and it's, it's not one that I would expect from everybody, but twins is your first wonder, and I, I think I understand why you might have put it down, but just explain uh, twins. Well, I, I put it down because that, for me, signifies uh, multiple births. I mean, that's a great thing. Uh, when, when you have one child, of course, everyone's happy and, and elated. But having multiple births, particularly back in the day when uh, medical science hadn't advanced to, uh, to help people, but giving, you know, have, and, I, and of course, for me personally, I am a twin. So I had that luxury of growing inside uh, uh, my mother's body with somebody else I didn't know. All I knew is this person took up a bit too much time and space and food. So, um, and, and also my twin is a, is a girl. And, uh, and the question I keep getting asked all my life is, am I identical with my twin sister? And uh, I have to laugh because she's not six foot two. She, I mean, she's a big girl, but she's not that big. Uh, she doesn't have sideburns. Yes. Well, so I suppose being a non-identical twins is perhaps got the best of both of all worlds, because I, I don't know if identical twins must feel a bit sort of a, a soul divided. You, you've got the benefit of that, but it might be a bit challenging. But a non-identical twin, you've got a companion straight away, but you are, you know, you're just like brother and sister, you know, you're, you're different people. Absolutely. We were so different people. And I'm, I thank that the powers that be, the nature uh, uh, gods that made it possible, because I personally think, I don't know if you didn't want to say it, Clive, I think identical twins or triplets are slightly creepy because it's not normal. We don't want to see the same face twice, three times and woe betide four or five times. But um, the only downside of that is that my my mum did insist on dressing myself and my sister in the same clothes. That was a problem. I'm, I'm still not sure you're making a brilliant case for twins. Uh, uh, people listening to this who maybe are parents of twins might think, oh, it's all very well you to say that. We were just about capable of looking after one baby, but two coming along together, more or less together, is uh, was a challenge for us. And we wouldn't be, we're not cheering when you say twins, however much we may love our children. Oh, come on, Clive. No, think of the beauty and the joy of having two bundles of joy at the same time. And if you're lucky enough to have one of of, the, of each sex, I mean, what a great start in life. You don't have to wait for a second or third child. You've got them both there at the same time. And you can watch these two minds develop and you'll know instantly that these people are individual. Oh, my goodness. My mum, oh, and, and in Nigerian culture, which is my culture, there, there's a name for people who have uh, twins. There, there's mama twins, baba twins, yabeji, baba beji. And it's, it's held with high esteem. You, you are the higher echelons of society because you've been blessed with multiple births. And that doesn't happen to everybody. No, I think you come from quite a big family. There's a lot, it's not just you and your sister. I, I wish there was sometimes, but yes, it's, it's myself and six other siblings, and it's a very difficult task. Uh, that was a, that was a difficult ta- time of growing up, sitting around a dinner table with all my siblings. My mum leans to my brother, points to me, and says, "Who is that child here?" I mean, this, these are the things I had to deal with, Clive. Um, and also, to be honest, I know people might think having twins uh, maybe a bit a difficult thing because I did ask my mum many years ago. I said, "Mum, tell me what was it like." having twins and she sat me down and she said oh Stephen it was like all the joy and all the beauty of having one child but totally ruined but so I kind of accept that it would have been difficult but wow who's afraid of hard work (laughs) so where are you in the scheme of things in the family were you the baby of the family that became an entertainer or the, the 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 oldest child who had to keep everybody in check Unfortunately not. We are smack bang in the middle. I have an older brother, an older sister, then there's myself and my twin, and then there's like a 10-year age gap. So for many, many years, we were the youngest, and then there's three others that we had to take to school and look after. That I resent my parents for. (laughs) Well, uh, people are often interested in... in, uh 
child order uh, and how it affects your character. So there's, there's so many influences there in what you've described. But but are you the only one in the family who's a comedian or, or is, was everybody funny round the, the table as you uh, scrabbled for attention and um, eating food at, food at mealtimes? Exactly, that's exactly what it was, trying to, to, to find ways to make your voice heard. And mine was being being silly, being funny, But uh, and my, my sister was, was singing, and my brothers was excelling at sport. So thankfully, they kept the entertainment down to me. The others are all in professional jobs. They're all academics, and I am not. I mean, I distinctly remember coming home with something called O-Levels back in the day, and I, had, I did 10 of them, Clive, and I swear to God, I didn't take into account how much my mother would be disappointed. I came home with my results and my mother was like, oh, my Lord, how can we look our friends in the eyes when we tell them our son Stephen is not just a simpleton, but he has a certificate to prove it. Look at this boy. <laughs> but well, you took 10 no levels. You weren't you can't have been, you know, that that dumb. You were you were least least competing. I, I, <laughs> I was I, I, I was competing in the race. I don't know if it was in the race, um, but there was things like there was like home economics. There was I mean stuff I had no interest in really. The sciences I'm not good with biology, physics, or chemistry. I can barely negotiate a Bunsen burner and a petri dish. So um, my things were, were English. I, I I did very well in English. Yes. Well, and you're, obviously that helps with uh, writing and performing jokes. So, you know, you, you, you got what you needed from your education, it sounds like. I, I, th- I think I did. Although, uh, having said that, I did go on because my parents were the kind of parents who did encourage their children to do well and not go into the field of entertainment or sports because that wasn't for us. And so I studied criminal justice. And uh, and that's that's what I do. That's what I did. And and the thing is, it's, people ask me now uh, if I miss doing law. And I think, wow, no. The difference is... Uh, uh, with, it's quite the same, but I've got a bigger audience and I don't have to wear a, a wig and a gown. It's amazing. Uh, but the, the, the main crux is that we both still stand up in front of a room full of strangers telling lies. That's what we do. And that's what it taught me. And, and the, your big family, your parents and so forth, uh, did they or do they come to see you when you perform? Are they supportive or, or were your parents saying, oh, surely you should have stuck to being a lawyer or couldn't you have become an accountant or a dentist or you know but they think oh no this is great i've got a member of the family who's uh, you know we can see on television or we can see at our local theater in the early days my dad i whenever I, in the early days they were not supported they didn't have they didn't have a point of reference for because as a family we didn't go to the theater and there wasn't a tradition of comedy in the house or comedy albums um, in fact, in the early days of stand-up, I remember going to see my parents, and every time I saw my dad, he would give me a job application form for the council because that's a job for life. And uh, and uh, in all these years, I can count on one hand how many times my parents have seen me live. And uh, the the biggest one was when I was doing uh, three nights at the Hammersmith Apollo, and my parents had f- just flown in that day from Nigeria, so I got them the best seats in the house. And my friends were like, oh, are you going to curb your material? I'm like, no. So I did what I did, which included doing jokes about them. And at the end of the night, I was so overwhelmed. And I just said to the audience, can you believe my parents are here from Nigeria? The crowd went electric. And my parents, mum and dad, both stood up and took a bow. And I was so angry. They were bowing and waving. I'm like, they're not here for you. They're here for me. This isn't about you. This is Stevie time. But that was quite sweet, though, wasn't it, for them to acknowledge? Was, being the parent of a comedian or a, or a spouse, come to that, is not a great gig sometimes because you're always being exaggerated and you know held up to ridicule. So if they were to acknowledge that, that, that was good of them. I think you should have enjoyed that moment. Well, yeah, maybe maybe I was a bit harsh, but uh, yeah, maybe I was a bit harsh because you know, I, I for years I thought, why don't you come? Then I did the year you mentioned. I did the the Royal Variety. That is when my parents thought I had made it. I had landed because I had met landed gentry. I've met royalty. 
up until then, I may as well have been driving a minicab or an Uber, as far as they're concerned. And my parents used to say to us when we were growing up, you know what, children, do as well as you can do, because in life, nobody's hands are equal. They're not the same size. Yet in the same breath, she'd point to a photograph of my older brother, who's more successful and a doctor at the time, holding his degree and saying to me, look at that picture. It's him I'm proud of. Uh, oh my god i just say mom calm down calm down mom there's nothing in life nothing such in life as mistakes only lessons and my mom replied without skipping a beat okay then you were a lesson (laughs) (laughs) wow sounds like sounds like she should have been a comedian as well you're quoting (laughs) her that's that's two or three big laughs she's got already (laughs) it's by you um all right this is all good, uh, um, funny stuff, Stephen. There's some some hidden pain somewhere. I can't, I can't, <laughs> quite, I can't quite see where it is at the moment. But. <laughs> I got another six hours to pay the money back and tell the Claim brothers that harassing a man who's already in the slammer is beneath even them, all right? I don't know any Claim brothers. I'm your brother, Julius. Huh? Come again? My name is Julius, and I'm your twin brother. Oh, obviously. The moment I sat down, I thought I was looking into a mirror. Let's go on to... Um, we'll come back to you, Stephen. I know, I know this is clearly a topic, but but let's go on to your second wonder, uh, which is a bit different from twins. Um, uh, do you have your wonders in front of you? So I, I do, say, yes. Yeah, all right. So let's go on to your second wonder. What is it? All right, my second wonder is... And this may be, uh, I, I just say it, it's the Porsche 911 Turbo. Right. Well, I know enough about cars to know that's a car. <laughs> <laughs> but is this, a, is this a dream car for you? Or do you have a, a stable of about three of these ones that, that you polish, <laughs> polish every Sunday and say, there, mum and dad, look, look at that. <laughs> I'll tell you what it was. Uh, as a kid of about eight or nine years old, I didn't even realise the power of advertising and marketing or anything about that. All I knew is that I saw this car on the street or on a TV programme and I fell in love with it. And I got a poster of this car as a child, uh, about nine or ten years of age, in my bedroom. You know, the classic uh, an example of German technology and engineering. I didn't know much about cars. I didn't know the workings of cars. I didn't even know the mechanics of cars. All I knew is this is a beautiful piece of design. And then, lo and behold, talking about to my peers at school, literally every other boy, I didn't really speak about to the girls back then, so I don't know, every other boy had a poster of this same car on their bedroom wall. All right. And I did you not, Clive? Uh, no, I know I didn't. I'm a little bit older than you. Maybe may, I don't remember having a car on my wall, but maybe I did. A car. But it wouldn't be a Porsche. I, I mean, I know a little bit more about it than I was pretending there. I mean, it is a, it is, it, it is a fabulous, uh, you know, I would call it a sports car. It's a powerful car. It's not a family runabout. It's, uh, it is a head turner. Yes, it is a head turner. And I think uh, maybe it's just my generation. A lot of kids were very influenced by cars they saw on TV programs. For example, Starsky and Hutch, there's an amazing car in there. I had um, little models of those. And also, I grew up in the era uh, when corgi cars were still very popular. And as children, we had those for Christmas. And, you know, these things reminds me of a certain time in my life. It also reminds me of our excellence. It reminds me about uh, uh, the, the, what you do, what you can achieve if you put your mind to it. Like uh, the, the guy who invented the whole, the first Porsche car, Mister Porsche. Um, I don't know, don't think his name was nine eleven. I mean, he was just a, a magnificent engineering genius. I mean, I couldn't put anything like this together, and this started my lifelong passion with the sports motor car. Yes, I think he was called Ferdinand Porsche. Oh, and, and, and it's no, but it's and it's quite a complicated uh, story because Porsche and Volkswagen are interrelated companies, and Audi now. And uh, I, I think he went through a well. He was an interesting time he had in uh, in Germany in the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties. And uh, <laughs> yes. I, I, best known made him at the time to go uh, go into that. But uh, he's certainly his engineering genius has never been doubted. Uh, some of his uh, 
his relationships with the governments of the time, uh, perhaps nothing to be proud of. But anyway, so he's an engineering genius, but it doesn't sound as though you're putting yourself forward as an engineering genius. But what I was asking, is it still, um, you know, a dream car or do you own cars or cars like this? Or do you ever drive a, a Porsche or a, or a Jaguar or anything else? I would have to say, uh, Clive, I do accept what you said about um, uh, Ferdinand and and his um, rather checkered sort of uh, past uh, and connections. But there's no denying that the, the Porsche 911 Turbo still has stood the test of time. And that, to me, is the difference. I think about cars uh, from Ford, the Ford Mustang, the classic shape that uh, is synonymous with Steve McQueen. I mean, that hasn't really stood the test of time in the UK, but you will see so many Porsches in the in the country. And I was fortunate enough to, I have been fortunate, I do own uh, two Porsche uh, motor cars. Uh, I'm not trying to brag. It's not about me. I, I do have one is a convertible and one is just uh, the, the regular classic shape. And uh, and uh, I'm, uh, cars and me are synonymous. I started out with a Volkswagen Beetle called Fat Sam, which was big and orange. And uh, having used that car for many, many years in central London and incidentally being stopped by the police in said Beetle for many, many occasions. Never been stopped by the police in the Porsche. I don't know why that. <laughs> maybe they can't, can't catch up with you, maybe. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Is is there a shape that attracts you to these these cars? The the E Type, the the Porsche. They they these are all quite sort of um, powerful, masculine looking shapes. Uh, I'm trying to be uh, uh, polite, <laughs> polite about it. <laughs> yes, yes, I would suggest it could be uh, an extension um, of my personality, but. Uh, I think you know, the shape is definitely something to do with it. It's very much, and I've seen lots of people drive these cars. Um, yeah, I like the power, I like the sound, I like the grit, and yes, I am a fan of speed. So the Porsche guy took his car back. <laughs> but you found the keys to his clothes? <laughs> no, I just... Uh... I just love the way it feels when everybody thinks I own a Porsche. And people would think you own a Porsche because you're wearing the clothes? Of course. <laughs> Only an idiot would wear this stuff if you didn't have the car. <laughs> let's let's move on rapidly to your, your next wonder. Yes, my next wonder is Nigerian Afrobeat superstar Fela Kuti. This man, uh, for me, uh, is uh, reminds me of my childhood. Now, my parents, to give you context, my parents arrived from London uh, in Niger- from Nigeria to London in the mid '60s, and they brought with them their culture, and their culture was the music of the time. And uh, and uh, we were born, and then in the '70s, my parents were still reaching out for back home, for music and culture. And their lifeline was Fela Kuti and this new sound that he developed coined uh, Afrobeat. Now, this man has worked with everybody and has influenced everybody from Paul McCartney to um, uh, big stars in in the US. And uh, basically, uh, he was also highly politicised. One of the first... um, uh, rock musicians, as it were, to have uh, uh, vocal, critical um, uh, responses to the government about what was happening in the country. And he actually arrived in this country uh, to study music uh, against his parents' wishes because they thought he was coming here to study uh, to be a doctor. But he studied music at the uh, at the amazing Royal College in London. And then he, he got himself... Uh, uh, friends and they went to traveling to America and he was one of the first international semi sort of crossover African artists who made it big and it's only when he arrived in America that he met um, one of the Black Panthers that he got politicized and then he took what he learned in America back to Nigeria and started to criticize the government and criticize how he was approaching music, saying, why is he trying to make music that was going to appeal appeal to Western ears when he should be taking his own culture and giving that a platform? And so what he did for Nigeria and African music is incredible. Yes. And, and just I would add to that, that, of course, the 
the government he was criticizing in in Nigeria at the time were in effect dictatorships they weren't they weren't democracies so that took uh, rather more courage than it would take to to do a satirical program in Britain or America absolutely and he was very vocal he put himself in danger his family in danger in fact he created something in Lagos which was the capital of Nigeria at the time called the Africa Shrine which was um, kind of a hedonistic place where people musicians from all over the world Miles Davis for example went to play there Massive names went to play there. Um, I believe Paul McCartney went there as well. So he'd have this big place, and that place was raided because he was very much of the, you know, uh, uh, let's let's. I'm here for the people, and uh, and very I'm very much going to be open and critical of corruption, uh, um, theft. He criticised big corporations too, and the Africa Shrine got raided on many occasions. Um, he got assaulted, put in prison. Sometimes when he was he was uh, travelling to America, he detained at the air detained at the airport with his visa revoked for some uh, obscure reason. So uh, for me, anyone who can be a radical um, uh, and be uh, protesting in their music and using their music and culture and their voice for, for, for trying to get democracy installed and fairness installed is incredible because he could have just played the game and just made music and kept his mouth shut and made lots of money, but he didn't. Yes. Well, I, I, can I just say I actually met him in uh, in Lagos. I did a documentary about Lagos uh, quite a long uh, time ago, 1996, I think it was. So wow. I met him and it, and it was about a year before he died because uh, and it was an exciting time. It was a, a, a difficult moment in the filming. Uh, he was a bit grumpy uh, when we saw him and he didn't want us to film and then he did want us to film and then we were filming when he didn't want and it was a, a scary moment because all the lights were out and we had to make our escape because there were a lot of angry people on his behalf. But uh, along the way, I went to the shrine and saw his, uh, his son performing, not not him and his daughter. Um, and I've and I've interviewed Femi and uh, Sheon and uh, and uh, I, I met his daughter Yeni as well in there. So so all that I wanted you to tell us all about it, but uh, I can at least claim to have uh, travelled that route. Uh, oh my uh, goodness! Do you know what, Clive? I had no idea you'd done that, and I'm so in awe. I'm so jealous. That that was because I've been to Nigeria many times, and the shrine is no more. But wow, brilliant! Because I I I went on mastermind. Can you believe that? And they said to me, uh, "What's your special subject?" And I thought, you know what? I'm going to do. I'm going to make people aware of fellow Cootie. So I chose him as my specialist subject, and also because I wanted to hear John Humphreys stumble on a few Nigerian words, and uh, I completely nailed that. And then I completely forgot that there's another element called general knowledge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd, 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 I'd imagine you might have gone wrong because there's quite a lot of stuff to know about Felicuti, and there might be more details that didn't come to mind. And it doesn't help if you get the host to stumble on the on the questions. That's, <laughs> it's using up your time, isn't it? <laughs> I hadn't thought that yeah. through. All right. Well, through the the medium of this podcast, which is not quite the same as Mastermind, uh, we've we, we've drawn attention to to fellow Kudia, but but I think he's quite well known now. Um, is well, yeah. there's been a show on in London about him, and uh, as you say, a lot of uh, various musicians from around the world reference him and and talk about him. And of course, his drummer um, Tony Allen died not long ago, and he'd been doing a lot of work as well with various people. So. Um, you know, so that was that's a. Yes, Sorry, it is you're, great you're, you're to, to say. So, yes, it is great to see the resurgence. I mean, I did see the show in London about him, and that was one of the, one of the few times I've seen uh, a musical in London where the audience were on their feet as opposed to sitting. Do you know what I mean? It was so weird, but it was beautiful. And uh, I believe there is a film in production, uh, and uh, the. Afrobeat genre as as a musical style is still sweeping the world right now, and it's down to him. Uh, what we don't have really these days is uh, protesting within music, particularly, but still Afrobeat sound is very much part of my soul. 
Well, I suppose I've just one more comment for me, which is perhaps not necessary, but the music is very enlivening. It's invigorating. It's sexy. Uh, but in, in, when he chooses to, the lyrics are all about, you know, they're, they're all ripping us off or or you're all zombies uh, obeying, the, <laughs> obeying the laws and the instructions. And it's just repeated again. So you're... You're sort of 20 minutes in, you realise you've had 20 minutes of, of anti-government propaganda. And I suppose, I don't know, they must tear their hair out. People are trying to run, uh, you know, Nigeria in the way it has been run uh, for periods of life. What do we do about this guy? He's so popular. Uh, yeah. and the, but everyone's enjoying the music. You can't say don't enjoy the music. but you And it's difficult to say but, you know, that line about us being corrupt. Uh, um, can yeah. we pay you to stop saying that? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! I remember he, he there was a big company called um, ITT, and uh, even one of the former presidents, two former presidents, were name checked in in a song, and he called the song ITT International Thief Thief, and he's naming name checking presidents, and you're thinking, you know, these guys have people people who may look for you but you're right Clyde because he was so popular they couldn't directly silence him but they did do awful things and uh, his legacy lives on though yes I, I mean I think even his mother died as a result of a raid um, that's uh, right yeah all right yeah. well uh, well that's uh, you know, obviously, a very worthy uh, um, wonder for you to put forward, and it uh, relates to your Nigerian heritage. And you mentioned your parents, you know, reference back, and you, you've been there. But was that sort of at home often the thing? Oh, this is a food we have in Nigeria; you can't get it in London. Or this is this is always better in in Nigeria in the in the sort of family dialogue. Absolutely, and there were so many things. And when I think about being a child growing up in London in the late seventies. And then seeing my parents wearing their traditional clothes, I was embarrassed. I was like, we don't want to stand out. Why are you making us stand out? Why are you making us eat all this traditional food? If I have rice another day, I'm going to throw it in your face. But now I appreciate exactly what they were doing. They had a, that was their lifeline for home because they arrived here and they're very much fish out of water. There wasn't many people that looked like them, that sounded like them. So they had to hold on to something. And I'm so thankful that myself and my siblings and their children can pass that on because it's, it's like, yes, you, you're, you're as British as you can be, but you can never ever forget your heritage, your lineage and where you're from. So I know how to cook Nigerian stew. I know I've got some amazing, uh, traditional Nigerian clothes. When I go there, I'm one of the few people on the aeroplane wearing head-to-toe Nigerian costume. And I don't care. Let them all look at me. They can stare at me. And I've got my own... I can understand the language. I can't speak it. That's the only downside. I wish my parents had taught us the language uh, because, wow, I could have spoken by everybody in their faces and they wouldn't have a clue. Um, but... But yeah, it's that because uh, our parents, they tried to assimilate with, you know, with British way of life. But my parents weren't really fond of bacon and eggs. They weren't really fond of cottage pie. Mm, yum, yum, yum. Uh, <laughs> bland, bland, bland. No, they're really very much into spicy foods. And it's really weird now, 30 odd years later, 40 odd years later, seeing all these foodstuffs available in not only markets, but supermarkets, it's incredible. Yeah, I think it applies to almost food from all around the world now is available, certainly in London and big cities. And it, it, you wouldn't have to uh, import something specially or get your auntie to bring something back. You have you can now just go to, well, I don't know, Tesco, Waitrose, Sainsbury's, whatever, <laughs> whatever brand we want to name. Um, well, exactly. And I remember yeah. the days when my, you're right, Claire, I remember the days when my parents used to go to Nigeria, used to come back with a case full of plantain and yam. <laughs> I don't know if you know what a yam is. It's huge and it's heavy. <laughs> what are you doing? And now you can get it down the road. And I remember my Australian friend came to visit me once and I took her down to Brixton Market and she stopped at this store and saw these amazing plantains. She went over to the woman, a nice black lady behind the, uh, the till, and she bought one plantain, which I thought was quite odd. And as the woman was giving her the change, my Australian friend started to peel said plantain and eat it like a banana. Wow. We laughed. We laughed. <laughs> and this Jamaica lady just went, what are you doing? <laughs> and my friend thought it was a banana. 
It was the funniest thing I've seen. And you just didn't bother telling her until she made a fool of herself. That's Absolutely. The, uh... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This week, Clive Anderson is joined by comedian Stephen K. Amos on My Seven Wonders. The show where guests select their personal seven wonders of the world. Stephen discusses his fame down under, who inspires his comedy, and how he got on during lockdown. My dad, early 80s, came to stay with me for two weeks of the lockdown. I had no idea after all these years that he is a twat. I had no idea, Clive, that the heating in my house could be set to lava. And I said to him, why is the heating on so high? And without skipping a beat, he just said, I don't pay the bill here. Now, this <laughs> is <laughs> it's the kind of thing I have to deal with. Listen to My Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's go on to your next uh, wonder, uh, which is... yes. Uh, my next wonder, um, I'm going to put the first word in brackets, uh, infectious laughter. Okay, infectious laughter, right. Yes. Um, so is this, when you say laughter, you're a comedian, are you talking about laughter you engender and hear as a response to your jokes? Or are you talking about you enjoy laughing? Or I suppose infectious laughter, I suppose, encompasses laughter that travels from one person to another. Absolutely. It is the latter. I absolutely, I'm not going to be bold and and brash enough to say the laughter I produce, but the laughter that comes from someone else that just infects the room and just goes around like wildfire. I defy anyone out there to see a newborn baby laugh for the first time. That joyous sound. I mean, you can't help but laugh yourself. You might not even know what the baby's laughing at. But wow, it's great. And again, uh, that whole thing about the last couple of years, a lot of us comedians and performers uh, haven't been able to do this job properly. But what we forgot as well was the audience themselves have missed out on entertainment. And then nothing bonds an audience more than laughing at the same thing. These people in front of me can be uh, uh, different ages, different backgrounds, and let's be honest, different levels of mental ability. But... Once a joke lands and you see people laughing or that picks up, it's brilliant. I remember in the 80s, there was that sort of that, that laughing track. <laughs> Do you remember that? You just have to put that on and I defy anyone not to laugh. I mean, and th- think about all the endorphins and all the, the wonderful things it does to our bodies that, that you're releasing on the inside that make you just feel happy and good. I've been doing this job for 30-odd years nearly, and one of my best friends in the world, his name is David. Uh, I've known him for all that time. He's only ever seen me do comedy twice because he said to me, I don't like comedy, I don't like laughing. What are you talking about? (laughs) Who says that? A grown human man, I don't like laughing. Get off the planet. So are you a good uh, member of the audience when you're watching somebody else? Do you 
Uh, I, so some comedians just sit there going, oh, yeah, I know, oh, that's a good joke. Mm, yeah. Oh, I could adapt that for me or oh, I wouldn't tell that. But others chuckle away. Uh, are you a chuckler or a note taker? I <laughs> note, note taker, open brackets, joke thief. No, um, no, I am absolutely uh, a joke laugher. I am there and I'm going to be in the moment. Uh, people say Jimmy Carr has a very distinct laugh. Honestly, if you hear my laugh, you would never, you would never, I'm, it's, I'm like a wailing banshee and I just let it out and I don't care because, as I said, I want to be in the moment and I don't know what it does to our bodies physically, uh, um, uh, scientifically, chemically, but it definitely does something. And, and also what's funny as well, in terms of laughter, if you're in a group of people and somebody laughs at something that you haven't quite got, you don't know, you want to know. You want to play catch up. You feel like you've been left out of something, that you're not part of a group. So for me, infectious laughter is brilliant. All right. Infectious laughter. Well, that's a that's a good one. I, I, I'm been doing this podcast with a variety of people. Quite a lot of comedians, I have to admit. And uh, there are very few uh, overlaps, you know, sim- similar ones being chosen by different people. But laughter has cropped up. David Baddiel... Oh. He, David Baddiel chose the sound of laughter in response to a new bit of material. So he was focusing on, he's doing a joke for the first time and he gets a laugh and he's in his mind, he's obviously thinking, right, I can use that again, or, or I got away with that or that worked, but I can use that again. So that's quite, um, you know, almost a professional uh, calculation. Uh, Stephen Fry chose laughter. David Dean, who used to run Arsenal Football Club, he also chose laugh. He like he likes a joke. Um, <laughs> th- 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 no, <laughs> he, he, he he ran Arsenal in the good old days. Um, right. yeah. <laughs> but so, so this is not just comedy. I think even Trevor McDonald chose comedy. Uh, so he also so it's it's and I think research shows that laughter is common to all humans around the world. It's a bit like music in that regard. Everybody understands. Uh, laughter. You, you can't not be human and uh, and uh, without la- knowing about laughter. So it's a very human... Well, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there are different, there are different forms uh, to generate laughter around the world. All one has to do is look at the the success of the, uh, the silent movie era, where it was all about physicality and slapstick, even on to uh, Rowan Atkinson doing Mr Bean. That proved worldwide hit. You know, people just laughing. And I, I totally get where David's coming from because, you know, when you do a joke in the, for the first time in front of an audience, you need to know it works. And then you have to try it again a few more times just in case it, was, it wasn't a fluke, you know. You've got to make sure it's, it's, it's bang on the money. But for me, the best thing about coming back after all this time of lockdown, uh, 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 corona, whatever you want to call it, was hearing the laughter and the energy of the people in the audience. I never, th- I never, I wasn't one of these comics who said that I believe a laughter is a drug. It's what I need. No, 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 no. But hearing it for the first time, because there is a diff- there is definitely a new energy at the moment out there, a hundred percent. Because the people who want to come out have definitely come out, and they've missed it, and you can hear it. And wow, you can. It's like it's like the um, the conductor leading an orchestra. You can ride that wave. You can take them where you want. It's just like, it's it's magical. Yes. While we're concentrating on you as a performer, uh, we, I mentioned at the beginning you've performed you know, all around the country, but also, in effect, all around the world. And you, let's go back to Australia. Do you have to change your material? Do, do people react to you differently? Because now you're a guy from England. And you say yeah. a, a, a black comedian, whereas in in uh, in say the Edinburgh Festival, okay, you're still a guy from England, but they, they perhaps know you and you're relating to British topics. Well, uh, but so so anyway, that's a long way of saying, do you have to tailor your material <laughs> to working in Australia? Not particularly. I mean, what I try and do, um, I try and uh, make sure that I'm aware of what's going on in the country in terms of things politically or or, or or socially, so I can have something to say if necessary. But in terms of my material, what I try and do is I try never to change it, never to adapt what I'm doing for the audience in front of me. I, when I do a show for like a mainly black crowd, it would be the same material that I do to a mainly white crowd. Because I think if you've got to change who you are in a way to kind of... Um, 
compensate for them not getting it, then you're you're putting something back. And I don't think you should ever do that to an audience. You, I've written stuff. If the if the place I'm at uh, have a good command of English. Thankfully, I'm one of these comics. Where I don't use a lot of slang. I don't use a load of colloquialisms. I, but I might find something out. For example, I found out uh, when I second or third time went to Australia, they had uh, a brand of cheese. I will say this. I don't know if you're able to use it. Well, you should be able to use it. It was a brand of cheese. It was called Coon Cheese, right? That was the name of the cheese. And when I saw it, um, my comedic brain goes, you can't say that. Now, obviously, logically, it's just somebody's name. It was a family name. But my comedic brain goes, let's take it this way. And, of course, little did I know that that sparked a fury. And now it's no longer called Coon Cheese. Oh, no, you've destroyed somebody's <laughs> mis- <laughs> Uh, I was going to suggest they might have changed it to another name, and I can only think of rude ways of doing that. So I, I don't, yes. I don't want to do that. <laughs> but, but maybe they just call it, you know, the best cheese or something in, instead. But uh, um, so that's just, uh, yeah, that's what I mean, though, Clive. About when you, when you, if you're an outsider looking in, there are things you see from a funnier perspective that the locals' population haven't even thought about. And also, one of the things I do mention. Uh, I do mention about the history of Australia. I do talk about the fact when I was in Tasmania that uh, uh, there were not many indigenous people left because the history says quite tragically that they were killed off. Uh, and yeah, it was awful. So I remember going on stage in Tasmania and saying to the audience, you've killed off all the indigenous people. And some of them got quite indignant. Somebody shouted out, we didn't do it. It was you. The English. And I was like, well, not this kind of English, I can assure you. It wasn't this. Um, and I asked the man who was organising the show, I said, the producer, I said, are there any black people here? And he literally said, yes, yes, there's Black Betty. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? It took every ounce of strength in my body, Clive, not to go, mm, bam, balam. <laughs> you know her by her black, but yeah, that's fish. She goes down the road. What do you mean? So there's, and I, they also had, I don't know, again, this turned into routine. I went into a supermarket and I found a bag of jelly babies, right? And it was a black, it was a bag of all black jelly babies, right? I'd never seen this before anywhere in the world. And it was called Chico's. And I was like, what? And I looked at the back and it had a serving suggestion, right? And it said, bite their heads off to stop them creating mischief. Wow. La- I know. Do you know, what? Do you know what? Do you know what, Clive? They've changed the name of Chico's as well. Well, you're up there with fellow cootie in the way you're changing the world. <laughs> <laughs> One product at a time. <laughs> I, well, it's not that, and I, you know, that's me. Well, as you know, Clive, it's looking for the funny angle, not trying to create, you know, um, a, a, a discourse, but looking for a funny angle and somebody else's point of view. No, I think that I think the Chico's one is is really quite a shocking story. I, I'm, uh, I can see you could get a laugh out of it, but it's strange <laughs> that it took uh, it took a comic comedy routine for people to think. Mm, no, I'm not sure this is the way the world is going. Uh, this this might have worked in. I'm going to say 1950, 1850. Uh, but, <laughs> but, um, it's really funny uh, because people ask me all the time, "What's it like going to Australia?" Aren't they racist? But I've got to say, when I people come and see my shows, right? And I don't, you know, I don't pander to anything. I just do what I do. So yes, there are people who've got some very outdated views and opinions, and and yes, the history has been shocking. Um, but you know what? We make change by confronting it and going there and and making your voices heard. And for these last few years, uh, the, the audiences that come to me to see me in Australia are, are, are people from all around the world. Uh, we see uh, the indigenous people, we see Asian people, white people, and that that's what I embrace. And uh, just just while we're on the, this topic, because I maybe we're giving the impression your act is entirely, you know, politically <laughs> motivated. I mean, you do mostly you do to a great extent talk about yourself and your your own personal circumstances. Um, has, has that always been something you've been comfortable doing? Is is it a you know because it's it's kind of the modern way of of doing comedy for a lot of comedians. Do you know that is a brilliant question because when I first started in stand up it didn't even occur to me that I could talk about myself. I thought, why on earth would an audience of strangers want to know about me? 
So I was literally one of those comics who was jazz hands. Look at me, look at me. Aren't I funny? Here's a punchline. I mean, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like what I was used to growing up watching, you know, uh, programs like The Comedians, where it was very much kind of uh, mother-in-law jokes or sexist jokes or racist jokes. Homophobic. It wasn't anything like that. It was just jokes. Uh, some of them were silly, but they were funny. And then, and I think part of that as well was getting confidence to, to prove that yes, I am funny because I started in a very strange way. I didn't. I I finished my studying. I went to America. I met this woman in New York over a long weekend, visiting the same friend, and she said, "You're really funny. Have you th- ever thought of doing comedy?" And I said, "Don't be silly. We're all funny when we've had bottomless margaritas for three days on the trot." And she said, "I run comedy clubs in London. Come and do stuff for us." And that woman, Delphi Manley, she changed my life because it didn't even occur to me that, you know, we could do this. I could do this. And so when I think back then of the jokes I was doing, it was probably about building confidence as well. Also not upsetting the audience, about telling them about myself. Look at me. And then I got to a point where I thought, you know what? I've nailed the funny. I've nailed this. Where else can I go? And then I think I saw a comic friend of mine talk about something personal and I thought, I'm going to talk about myself and my family and my experience of growing up in a big family in southwest London, one of the only black families on our street. And the audience lapped it up more than my regular jokes because it was like telling a story, bringing people into your world, letting people know that you can laugh at situations. You could go through adversity and come out the other end. I mean, Wow. Never thought I could do it, but yeah, I touch on lots of personal things now. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and you're now comfortable. But what I was really asking as well, are you comfortable with that? Because you know, not everybody wants to share every aspect of their life, e- even even if they get a, a big laugh out of it. It's uh... oh oh yes, I I know where the line is. I I mean, I would I would never, for example, when I th- I when I talk about my family, for example, I never mention their names. I don't ever say what they do for a living. Uh, and that happens in interviews, uh, on stage, whatever. I never mention them by name because they didn't sign up for it. Uh, another example, I was asked recently to go on Mastermind. And then they said, can we have a photograph of you when you were a student, when you away went to university? Blah, blah, blah. And I said, that's too much. I don't want to put that out there because I don't, you know, once you start putting too much of yourself out there, you open yourself up for anything. So there are there is a line that I won't cross. But I will make some. I will take comedic license and stretch something. Like, uh, like my dad, for example, uh, early eighties came to stay with me for two weeks of the lockdown, and I've got to say, I had no idea after all these years that he is a twat. That is confirmed, and I'm using that word lightly because I use the other word normally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. And yeah. So I hope yeah. you can put that in. But he's a yeah, knobhead. Yeah. Yeah, what a knobhead. Treated me in my own house like a bloody slave. What are you doing? And uh, honestly, and then the heating, I had no idea, Clive, that the heating in my house could be set to lava. This man was taking the mickey. And I said to him, why is the heating on so high? And without skipping a beat, he just said, I don't pay the bill here. Now, this (laughs) is, is the kind of thing I have to deal with. But, you know, again, nobody knows his name. Nobody knows where he lives. So on that level, I don't mind sharing. But there are certain things I wouldn't, like my nephews and nieces, I wouldn't name check them at all. All right. I think we need your father and your mother as performers. They sound like a, <laughs> they sound like a hoot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, double act. Yeah, get that on. The, the award-winning screenwriter Abby Mann has died at the age of 80. He won an Academy Award in 1961 for Judgment at Nuremberg. Excuse me, sorry. Abbey Man also won several Emmys, including including one in 1973 for a a film which featured a a police detective called... (laughs) The character on whom a long-running TV series was eventually based... It's ten minutes past eight. We're going to move on to your next wonder because it's going to run out of time otherwise. So, oh my um, goodness! Right, yeah. okay. Uh, yeah. My next wonder is uh, imagination. Okay, right. Now, by that I mean um, that we all have it. We all have it, escapism in our brains. Um, 
I remember when I was 11 years old, I told you I quite like English. Um, and I remember used to, I used to, I still have my school textbooks uh, for my English classes where I used to write stories. And I remember seeing my English teacher, his name was Mr. Matthews, on the bus. And he came up to me, he went, that was a really excellent story, Stephen. Have a look in your textbook when you get to school. Went to look and he'd given me uh, three ticks and an A star. And I think, looking back, that that was the starting ground of where what I'm doing now. Because it was escapism. It was creating little worlds for myself and writing stories and pretending I was somebody else. And so the imagination, especially if you've got children or nephews or nieces, the children's imagination runs wild. It's brilliant. It's a beautiful thing. Where they're not jaded at that point. They're not influenced by uh, negativity. They just want to see the world in, through their own innocent eyes. And it's brilliant. Mm. Oh, well, it sounds like Mr. Matthews was... Uh, often people have a teacher in their background that, you know, they're not doing very well, but they're encouraged or they're doing really well and they're pushed on to even greater things. So so with his ticks and stars and A's, uh, that set you off eventually on a, on a career of creative writing and performing. Yes, and verbal dexterity, because I didn't think I was good at anything particularly. I didn't think I was maybe worthy enough. I didn't even think I was able to perform. And it was in primary school, we had a, I had a teacher called Mrs. Duick, Ruby Duick. And uh, then I went to secondary school, and it was Mr. Matthews. And I've got to say, I did a show in Greenwich about four years ago, and there was probably about 1,500 people there. And at the end of the gig... One of the uh, stage uh, crew came up to me, oh, there's a lady out here, she wants to see you. I said, oh, who is it? I'm not expecting anyone. It was Ruby Duick. And, oh, my goodness, I've got goosebumps saying it now because you, when you're a kid, the people that really make an impact on your life, you never, ever forget them. And she was so kind. She was encouraging. She didn't ever raise her voice. Uh, she treated everyone in that classroom exactly the same. And... And it's really weird because I saw her as a young, small boy, as a giant woman. And now, all these years later, I was looking down on this tiny woman who is no more than five foot 11. And I just was in floods of tears because this wave of emotion and and thankfulness and, and gratitude because, you know, it was her and Mr. Matthews, who, and I've never met him since, who stood out. And they, they, I think the lasting thing I can take from both of them is that they allowed me to be me. Oh, excellent. Well, have you ever seen the film of Ian Wright uh, bumping into, uh, not bumping, there was a kind of contrived meeting for, on, so it's on film of him meeting his teacher. And he had a, some difficulties in his childhood and this guy really helped him. Uh, you you yes. can't watch it. You can't watch it without crying. It's just, it's just impossible. It's beautiful, and it was so. I remember seeing that film, and was it not in the in a stadium somewhere? Yes, it was. Yes. It was in the stands. Yeah, and as soon as he saw this man, after all these years, he just got him straight away, and that's exactly what happened to me. That emotion, that, and can you imagine if it was one of these teachers who wasn't very nice? And I'm sure if we all have experiences of that, wow, what a meeting that would be. Right to film that one. <laughs> Oh, my PE teacher, oh, he was a monster. <laughs> he used to throw the ball in our faces. <laughs> so if he'd been a bit kinder, he might have set you on the road to being a, you know, an international footballer or an athlete of some sort. But Yes, yeah. a, a gold-willing uh, Olympic uh, athlete. Yeah, no, no, doubt it. Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me, and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look, and you'll see into your imagination. All right, well, imagination, a good, good abstract quality. And again, along with laughter, we think of as very human qualities. You know, everybody has it, maybe that not possessed by animals. It's what Marx says, artists, humans, uh, possibly. You uh, that was uh, that was 
your fifth wonder, but you skipped over one. So I want to make sure we don't forget air travel. A lot of people, even if they fly a lot, think, oh, it's tiresome going through the airports, security, visas, queuing up. Environmentalists will be screaming at the uh, whatever device they're listening to this on, saying this is <laughs> this is destroying the world. Air travel. Why is this a wonder of the world? Well, it, well, I'm, 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 I'm a for a start. I'm harping back to the days when this was uh, a, a thing that was accessible to the common man. You know, because the air travel brought people together. It brought families together. It allowed people to explore the world and see things with their own eyes. Up until then, it's what we were fed on the TV screens, what we were fed through the media and newspapers. We could have been told all sorts of propaganda until you saw stuff with your own eyes. And uh, the advent of package holidays, people meant to go and see Spain. I mean, obviously, it decimated the British seaside industry, but that's another thing. But people got to go abroad. People got to experience other people's culture. Um and yes, of course, now we're talking about that in terms of, of environmental damage. People will still travel. You know, if we're if we are talking about trying to get uh, uh, manned trips to the moon, <laughs> let's knock that on the head before we start knocking uh, international air travel. Who wants to go to, the, to to space on the edge of space for two seconds for three hundred thousand pounds? Are you insane? Stop that, Richard Branson. Stop that, the rest of you. What are you doing? Let people go from... <laughs> Hang on, you're, you're being defensive here just because I raised an environmental question. Oh, it's not as bad as going to the moon. <laughs> but, I mean, air travel to you may may well involve, you know, you enjoying a holiday or two, but, of course, it is, again, it's a vital part of your career, you and international comedians. So you've got an English-speaking world. I mean, you've, we've, we've mentioned some of the barbarities of the British Empire, uh, but it has set up a worldwide industry for comedians who can, with with you know with decent prospects of success go to australia new zealand even south africa canada um hong kong you know there's it's it's played into the hands of the of the comedian <laughs> like like you <laughs> it get well it has made everything more accessible i give you that but on a more personal level, it does mean that I can I can have a more instant connection with my family in Nigeria. Um, all the other people who came from India, Pakistan, the second, third generation people can now have access quickly to go and see their friends and family. Can uh, people who came on the boats, the ships from the Caribbean, you know, they don't have to do that treacherous journey anymore. They can just get on a flight and then be there in a few hours. You know, it's the convenience has been amazing. And uh, I once took a, and you're right, it, it's very bad, some of them, uh, uh, traveling to the moon, yes. I did once take a flight to Perth, Australia. It was a 17 hour flight nonstop. Uh, that I wouldn't recommend because uh, it just doesn't feel natural. Uh, it doesn't feel normal. But wow, what an invention. You know, this big metal thing in the sky that goes through all manner of weather and temperatures. And then a few hours later, you're somewhere else disorientated. And uh, wow! Now, when you fly the flag, you can fly the future. British Airways Concorde, the first supersonic passenger airliner to fly you at more than twice the speed of sound. Concorde has crossed the Atlantic in three and a half hours, and now she will fly you to Bahrain faster than ever before. It's all part of taking more care of you, giving you what you need, first, best, and fastest. Fly the future. Fly the flag with British Airways. You know, I obviously point out the downside. I think uh, you, you've made a good case of how wonderful and extraordinary air travel is. Maybe, maybe once they've got, um, you know, solar panels on the wings and and everything else, and they don't have to use fossil fuel, it might we might be a bit more comfortable with it. But uh, yeah. well, um, and you know, Clive, something is going to happen. I mean, they're phasing out petrol in cars very soon, so it's just a matter of time. Yes, it's all going to run on 
a hamburger fat or something. It won't, it, it won't make the place smell any better, but it'll, it, it won't be damaging. Except we won't be having hamburgers. Either. Anyway, um, we're going to go on to your last wonder, your seventh wonder. Uh, did, did you find it difficult coming up with seven wonders? This, this, I, I'm, I'm sent these wonders in advance. This one came after the other six. I don't know if you just lost count or you I couldn't don't... think of, couldn't think of a seventh wonder. <laughs> I absolutely lost count. I was like, oh really? Oh gosh, okay. So yes, my apologies. Yes, but I thought about this one as well, and I thought, um, I, I put the C, the C, yeah, any the C. The sea, because you like swimming in it, you like looking at it, you like sailing in it. What's what? What is the the, the big thing as far as the sea? The is big concerned? thing for me about the sea is that it is water, and water is the source of life. I mean, how did it happen? How do we have land and sea? How did this? How does the? How does sea try and reclaim bits of the land? How do people try and make? A man-made bits of the sea. It's just incredible. How how come there is some seas that that is called the Dead Sea, where they're very very salty? How come there's a different kind of sea where the marine life flourishes? How come there's you know uh, uh, another type of sea where there's another underground uh, planet, the you know the coral reefs and all that, which I've seen. It's it's a thing of wonder. Uh, you know, if people go on hunger strike. Uh, to to, uh, to voice uh, protest in certain cases and causes, but they still have to drink water to survive. I mean, it's just whatever we as human beings, we're what seventy percent water, I believe. Uh, that's what I, and I can't, I don't swim, um, I don't go sailing, I get seasick. Um, uh, to be honest, me and the water, uh, no, my afro, no, no, no. It's not going anywhere near water, right? Uh, my what's, Afro... going, where, what's going on here? You put the sea as a wonder. You, you don't swim. You don't go near it. It's just, uh, no, it's, no, just I, out I, there. it's just out there. I go near it. I don't swim because I've got a lovely Afro. Uh, my, my Afro and the sea are like a jockey's left and right testicle. They're never going to meet, Clive. They're never going to meet. So basically... I love the I love the water. I love people uh, when I see people swimming. Them going to the seaside, going to the beach. That just, what just water, what water signifies. Just standing there, watching the ripples of a wave, watching uh, dolphins coming up and down and jumping through. It's it, the power of water is extraordinary. Um, uh, for, even the rainfall. You know, I, I've got a stream running at the back of my house. And when it rains, it's beautiful. The colours that emerge, it's an emerald sort of blue type colour. It's soothing. You know, sometimes when you hear it in a thunderstorm, uh, I, I know I'm being very wide with this remit, but for me, it's, it's water in the sea, the, the lifeblood of humankind. All right. Well, I think you've expanded it from the sea to water of all okay. sorts. Okay. Yeah. No, it's good. It's good. I, I was earlier suggesting you you could be the new Jeremy Clarkson, but it sounds like you could be the new David Attenborough as well. Oh like, yes, uh, please. <laughs> <laughs> like the uh, David. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, I'll be fascinated with what his seven wonders are, but I've yet to persuade him to do this podcast. But I live in hopes. Uh, look, we've uh, we've we, I think we've run our course of a, a really good range of uh, wonders, if I may say so. Um, I have to choose the wonder of wonders from your list of seven. The one right. which struck me as particularly wonderful, as you described it on this podcast. Uh, and well, a lot of them uh, I would be happy to go with. But I think the, the the most relevant one, especially as I was able to um, reminisce that I'd met him as well. I'll put Fela Kuti in, uh, which does reflect uh, uh, music, uh, your Nigerian heritage, and uh, uh, more or less happy memory for me of uh, making a documentary <laughs> in Lagos. I'll, I can tell there are a lot of stories from there, being arrested twice and uh, running foul of Fela Kuti's um, colleagues at any rate. Uh, long stories I can get out of that. So I will put Fela Kuti as uh, your wonder of wonders. So uh, thank, thank you very much. Thank you. I accept that. Okay, well, thank you very much, <laughs> Stephen K. Amos, uh, for for joining uh, joining me on uh, this this podcast. Uh, it's a, it a joy listening to you and uh, and hearing you laugh and uh, laughing along. And uh, um, perhaps we'll be able to see each other, uh, uh, you know, face to face and in some sort of air of performing one day, and not just down the line. If you enjoyed listening to My Seven Wonders, it would be wonderful if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform side or provider you found us on. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you very much, Stephen K. Amos. Thank you for having me.
by Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a Stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.